0: Welcome to Power Problems, a podcast from the Cato Institute, now recorded in socially distanced form from the comfort of our homes to yours. We offer a skeptical take on US foreign policy and discuss some of today's big questions in international security with guests from across the political spectrum. I'm Emma Ashford. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought about widespread uncertainty. What will society look like next week or next year? Will the economy recover? Which countries will emerge the strongest? The one thing that's certain, though, is that the U.S. government can no longer ignore the changing realities of the modern world, especially when thinking about the military and the use of force. The unipolar moment is over. It's time to rethink what kind of threats are important, which ones aren't, and what resources and strategies we need to address them. Last week, my colleagues at Cato released a new paper on this topic titled Building a Modern Military, The Force Meets Geopolitical Realities. It takes a look at the budgetary and strategic challenges that have hindered development and progress in the military. It explores what specific changes need to be made in force structure and weapons development, and it calls on Washington to re-examine and realign our spending and national security priorities. So joining us today to talk about the new paper are two of the authors, Eric Gomez, Cato's Director of Defense Policy Studies, and Christopher Preble, currently the vice president for defense and foreign policy studies at Cato, but also the co-director of the New American Engagement Initiative within the Scowcroft Center at the Atlantic Council. Eric, Chris, welcome back to Power Problems.
1: Thank you, Emma. Thanks, Emma.
0: So, uh, it's going to be a big shocker for our regular listeners, um, but this paper is centered around a ground strategy of restraint. So, um, even though most of our listeners are probably pretty familiar, I thought we should start with a very quick refresher for those that are unfamiliar. Um, So, tell me in a nutshell, what is restraint and why does it matter for the military?
1: Well, restraint means, in the simplest terms, terms the restraint in the use of force. Um, And I think that that makes sense for uh, a a paper that's focused on the military and the structure of the military, but it also uh, needs to take account of why, uh, in our opinion, uh, restraint is the appropriate course for the United States. Uh, As I've written for many years, including in a book called The Power Problem, um, the use of the military is often not necessary in order to keep the United States safe and secure. Um, and and therefore, if we were to restrain our impulse to use it, we would actually be safer. Now, this is a hard sell for a lot of different reasons, uh, not the least of which is that the military instrument is easily wielded in the United States because the power is held ultimately in the hands of a single person. Uh, And so unlike the rest of our political system, which is uh, defined mostly by gridlock, uh, presidents of the United States, and again, not just starting with President Trump, have figured out That if they really want to get something done quickly, the way they do it is to reach for the big hammer. And so uh, that's ultimately what restraint is all about, is about limiting the use of force because it is not actually necessary in order to keep us safe and
0: secure. So something I, I hear a lot from people um, is that they they don't know how to operationalize restraint, right? So we do spend a lot of time talking about the strategy components of restraint. You know, why should we do it? Why is it better than what we're doing today? Why do we need to do it going forward? We don't spend as much time talking about um, how we design a U.S. military for a grand strategy of restraint. What would it look like if we tried to move in that direction? Um, and so um, I, I assume I know that's part of the most motivation behind this paper. Um, But I'd like to to hear you both talk about that a little. Why is it important for us to re-examine our our military structure if we're going to shift our grand strategy? Well,
2: I think there's a few really good reasons to do it. The first being that usually restraint is defined by things that you don't do. What, What countries do you not intervene in? What conflicts do you not pursue? And while that I think is very useful in, especially in the strategy that we're in now of just trying to do a lot of things in a lot of different places. It is more difficult, I think, sometimes to sell that to people who are not already believers in restraint, right? So it's it's useful to say, here's what you do do, right? Put a more of an active um, aspect on it as a sort of tactical issue to help tell people what this thing is about, not just what it's opposed to.
0: I mean, it's also a question of prioritization, right? So, um, you know, if, if strategy is the matching of means and ends, um, then we should we should talk not just about the ends, but about the means we're going to use to get there, right?
2: Right, and and that's the other part of oper- operationalization. It's okay if we have these strategic goals that a lot of folks at Cato and in academia on restraint have been talking about for years. What is the force posture that's best suited to meeting them? And so this project has a lot of that in there. Um, there's, we went through every major combat branch of the military. That's um, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marine Corps. And we also examined nuclear weapons and missile defense as part of a section on strategic deterrence to try and say, okay, if we have these a shorter list of goals to achieve or a more specific list of goals to achieve, here's what each of those branches ought to prioritize in order to start looking like a military to meet those goals.
1: Yeah. And can I also add to that? I I think that we've, we've quickly sort of summarized both the restraint of means and the restraint of ends, both of which are important for a grand strategy of restraint. But I also want to echo what uh, Eric said with respect to what are we for? Because it's also our belief that the overuse of the military and an over-reliance on the military as the primary instrument of American influence comes at the expense of other tools that are actually more effective over the long term. And that's uh, that's global engagement through diplomacy, trade, and cultural exchange. Um, those are the three things that I am for. And I believe that it's important to define American engagement precisely in those terms so that you're not just on the defensive constantly and arguing against things. You need to be able to ar- argue for things as well.
0: Well, I'd like to come back to that a little more at the end, actually, because I, I think this paper is definitely focused purely on the military. And I want to talk a little later on about sort of what you've left out of here. Um, but let's go back to some of the things that Eric was talking about for a second. Um, so talk me through, I know we don't have time here to talk through everything in the paper, but talk me through just a couple of examples of, of things that you would change in some, some branches of the military, um, and that would look very different from what we have today.
2: So I think the, the section that I had primary responsibility for writing was the section on strategic deterrence. And in that section, I talked through how under the current conceptions of strategic deterrence, we have a lot of threats to deter. It's a very broadly defined concept. And because of that, you need a very large and diverse nuclear arsenal and also missile defense force to deal with all those problems. And if you do anything less than trying to prevent all of them at once, it comes across as a failure. So what I suggest is having a more narrower conception of what does strategic deterrence mean, shortening the threat list by using diplomacy, especially with uh, smaller nuclear threats like Iran and North Korea to just say, listen, these don't have a military solution at all. Let's just try to manage the threat or eliminate it via diplomatic engagement, not military force. Um, And then on the U.S. military side, Thinking about how non-nuclear things can contribute to strategic deterrence, because it's not just deterrence isn't just about nukes. Even though we often think of it that way, it's about costs and benefit and manipulating a, a target's uh, cost-benefit calculus. And you don't have to use nukes to do that. And so that combination of things of shortening up the list, using diplomacy to handle more threats, and having other non-nuclear things contribute to strategic deterrence, I think does a good job of, you know, arguing that you could probably reduce certain aspects of nuclear modernization to save a bit of money um, while also having not like inviting disaster at the same time. Uh, So that, that was an example um, from my section. Another thing that I've been following closely for, for other reasons is the Marine Corps and the Marines have released a Commandant's planning guidance last year and a force structure assessment for 2030 that even though they're not explicitly about restraint, this is the Marines saying, this is how we're going to contribute to a primacy-focused strategy, but they have a lot of good restraint things in them. Um, Specifically, the plan to move away from some capabilities like helicopters and tanks and focus more on things like unmanned vehicles and land-range, mobile, long-range missiles to have like a basically reverse anti-access area denial on China that's a really good example of what I think a restraint military ought to be thinking about because it's saying, listen, we can't do everything that we used to. We're going to focus on a few narrower things and we're going to make some very hard force posture and budgetary choices to reflect that.
1: Let me pick up on that. If I could real quick, Uh, Eric, of course, mentioned anti-access aerial denial, which has become sort of the buzzword for describing the the challenge, especially of operating in the Asia Pacific and in the, East China Sea and the South China Sea in particular, um, and I think that that we are, this document is predicated on the idea that the United States and the rest of the world is moving into a period of defense dominance. That's partly a function of deterrence, which Eric has already addressed, but it's also a function of the conventional military tools that have now and put in the hands of uh, smaller and weaker actors that make it harder for even very, very large and capable militaries to operate effectively. So in the sections that I focus on, uh, obviously I'm very interested in the Navy, having once served in the Navy, and and I'm gravely concerned about the amount of money and effort that we are investing in in, uh, very, very large and exquisite Naval platforms like aircraft carriers and large surface combatants at the expense of smaller vessels uh, that might be able to operate in this defense dominance uh, uh, arena. Uh, Related, though, however, is the idea that the U.S. Navy is only one of several uh, and, in fact, many important players in the maritime space, that the global commons, especially the global seas, are just too large and too complicated to be policed by a single nation, and so, uh, and this this is uh, consistent with, with writings that I've done over many many years. Um, I think that precisely because we're moving into a defense dominant uh, era, um, it is incumbent upon other countries with uh, navies and coast guards to leverage that technology to better defend themselves and not rely on the forward presence of the of the U.S. Navy.
0: You know, I want to come back to the the first part of what you said there, um, because as somebody who's effectively an outsider to this debate, I don't really do defense policy. Um, it sounds like um, the the argument that you're you're making on you know certain kinds of platforms really echoes some of the arguments that scholars have had about um, shifts from battleships to other kinds of platforms when when battleships effectively just became obsolete. Overnight, um, and nobody realized that that was going to happen. And it sounds like you're describing almost a similar kind of shift in the operating environment, um, and that the Navy's not prepared right now for that shift.
1: That's right. I, I think there, you know, there are many occasions over the course of human history in military affairs where technology moved faster than doctrine did, and um, and I think it, it sometimes tragically can take a very dramatic uh, moment or series of events. Uh, before people adapt. And so, you know, you can go back even to, to, um, uh, loading rifles and, and, you know, long range artillery and things like that, that also made ground combat very costly, but long before people figured that out. Um, and again, the Navy experienced that, uh, in the, in the early 20th century with the advent of, of aircraft on, on, uh, on ships. So, so yes, I think that, that we are trying in this document to emphasize innovation And to think ahead to how the combination of technology and operational concepts calls for a different force structure, a modern military. And there's a there's a a repeated sort of invocation. Some might even accuse us of of being redundant um, on the issue of innovation, because otherwise, if you my sense is, if you do not emphasize innovation, constantly, the power of inertia is just too strong. And the only other thing that's going to move you off that point is some tragic event uh, that, that dramatically reveals the shortcomings of um, legacy uh, systems. And we obviously don't want that to happen. So we're trying to get ahead of that, that sort of
0: event. So, yeah, so I, I think that's actually a really good um, description of the paper from my read of it, because, you know, there is just a lot of talk about how innovation can help move us away from sort of a larger military to one that's perhaps more efficient and more suitable for the, the current operating environment. Um, but I, I guess the, I do have to ask you the flip side of that question. Um, are there things um, that you just left untouched? Are there things that you think the military is doing right today um, that you wouldn't, you wouldn't mess with?
2: Yeah, so I, I think the two of the biggest areas that immediately come to mind are, I don't know if you want to group them under like the 21st century branches or, or what, but this, this project didn't really touch on Space Force. It didn't really touch on cyber. And I think that both of those, and, and the co-authors and I agree that both of those are very important for the way forward. Um, they're, they're very important for budgetary debates and doctrinal debates in the military, um, but we didn't really get to either of them. We talk about innovation in some of the branches, and, and there is some discussion of AI and uh, creating what's called what we call data wranglers to help uh, the military more effectively work with large quantities of data that are going to be required for new weapon systems to function properly. But I think that, and we hope to turn this into a recurring type of project, and I think the next iteration of it is going to have to take a closer look at those sort of, you know, 21st century future/slash modern uh sources of military power. Um, so I think that's gonna have to be be closely looked at. Another thing that I really liked about this project was the budget pathology section, where we talk about the misuse of overseas contingency operation funding to skirt budget caps. Um There's a great line in the paper that if if the overseas contingency operation account was its own government agency, it would be something like the third or fourth largest government agency by spending. Um, And this is something that I think both the military and Congress are complicit in in trying to have high levels of spending while keeping the top line of the budget um, within budget cap uh, within the budget control acts uh, caps. So we examined that, and we examined reprogramming, um, which is when you take money away from some things to fund others, uh, which the president has tried to do with border wall funding. Um, I think we want to, there's a lot more that we could look at, though. Um, One thing that comes to mind is, you know, Congress's role in uh, having a sort of resistance point against certain innovative things that the military would like to do. Um, I think we're going to see that with Marine Corps where the Marines want to move in a certain direction, uh, like I said earlier, away from sort of some helicopters and tanks and other platforms and towards different ones. And I I think there's a good chance that Congress and the budgets say, why don't you just have everything? Um, Which, you know, I guess is like, yeah, I would would want to have everything too. Um, But I think that makes prioritization difficult because if the military... Does a good job in identifying like this is an area we really need to change and we really need to fix our priorities on um, but congress because of either jobs in people's districts or because of whatever reason decides well no we're, we want to give you everything and, and you can't be innovative right like, you can't do that because it threatens some vested interest that we might have that's also a, a, a budget pathology so i think we want to in the next iteration of this project definitely look at, you know, cyber and space command um, to see what that does to the U.S. military and how we conceptualize conflict in the future. Um, And also examining a few more of these budget pathologies, because I think that's a really strong point of this paper. And you can't kind of have these discussions about changing the way the military looks and functions without talking about some of the ways that Congress and the executive branch uh, have incentives to just not move in a really innovative direction
1: can i mention two other things big topics that i think we left mostly off the table and i think a, a subsequent iteration will address um, and they do go together the first is people um, the strength of the u.s military is inarguably its people men and women who serve are exceptionally capable exceptionally motivated and very very well trained um, and the the problems in uh the branch that's closest to m- to my heart the navy are partly a function of training and partly a function of overworking the force and so again restraint would advance uh or, or help solve this problem by using that force less often and relying on um, uh, uh, sort of refraining the impulse to use force as a way to to allow that branch to operate at the at the peak of its effectiveness, but the the reforms in the personnel branch apply to all the services, uh, and and I think that's everything from um, a more flexible and adaptive career path. Uh, that allows people, for example, to move more freely between the reserves and the active forces, a much more heavy reliance upon the reserve forces as an actual strategic reserve that would be called up only in times of great uh, uh, need. Um, And the other thing uh, that I think we didn't address in great detail uh, is unmanned systems, uh, which also goes together with uh, if we rely more heavily on a smaller but very, very well-trained adaptable force of men and women, then they will be using more unmanned systems. Um, I really didn't address that in the Navy section of the paper, although I do think that that the most important innovations in the surface fleet and in the subsurface fleet, frankly, over the next quarter century or so and beyond, are going to be in uh, accelerating the move towards unmanned systems, which for now uh, is, is really uh, not yet really gotten off the ground in the Navy in particular.
0: So if I were to kind of characterize um, an overview of, of what you what you guys have been saying, um, it, it really sounds to me like there's three parts here that have to all fit together. Um, the first is the strategy, which um, many of us at Cato and others have been talking about for a long time. Then there's the sort of the force structure part, which is what you address in this paper. Um, and then the third part is kind of the budgetary part, um, what Congress authorizes, um, the fights over how the budget is done, and some of these budget pathologies. that that Eric was talking about. And if any one, I think, of those three things is off, it might throw the whole balance off here. Um, But I want to focus back on the budget for a second um, because I think there's a perception that modernization and innovation is expensive. um, And every defense budget I've ever seen is written to basically give more and more money for this kind of thing. Um, What does your plan do to the budget, just in general terms?
2: Well, we initially started this project as a budgetary project, um, but as it evolved, it turned much more into a force posture project rather than purely budget. So we haven't done the math on what all of the proposed changes would cost, partly because some of the proposed changes are pretty large and it's hard to predict how much they would cost. Um, I think though that a few a few general benefits of some of the things we're talking about you know if you move to unmanned systems there might be a cost saving in force structure size like you could reduce uh manpower numbers in certain branches if you had uh weapon systems that could function with fewer people using them if you have a more limited set of military objectives around the world that could also be conducive to reducing the total end strength of the military the army section explicitly calls for a 20% reduction in manpower so there's savings there in terms of salaries, training expenses, um that sort of thing. On the platform side, I think a big a big recommendation that we have would be um uh, by moving away from some systems like the carrier for example. Or, or not I'm not saying like don't build any more carriers ever. Um but maybe build fewer. Uh then you can use that money to get more stuff elsewhere. So if the cost of a carrier is around what 10 to closer,
1: closer to 15. It's, uh, yeah, closer if, to 15.
2: If a carrier costs 15 billion, if one carrier costs that much, but a frigate, a next generation frigate can cost one billion, then by foregoing one carrier, you can theoretically get, you know, 15 more ships of another class. And so a lot of a lot of what the paper suggests isn't so much about uh, finding huge savings, but about taking money and just thinking about using it differently. On, on, on the nuclear side, I think there is more of a of a case for reducing spending. We're we're on track to spend uh, well over a trillion dollars over the next thirty years on nuclear modernization. Um, that is it, that assumes we do a lot of things about replacing current systems on a one to one basis, and some of them I think you could just cut entirely. Uh, like the B61 Mark 12 nuclear gravity bomb. I have a gravity bomb where you can have a long range cruise missile that can get through air defenses and deliver the same sort of effect to the same sets of targets without risking an aircraft. Um, so I think you could just get rid of that entirely um, on the ICBM. leg, you could probably reduce the ICBM leg by half, or even, you know, even if you reduce it by 75%, you can save uh probably i think uh, a 25% reduction in the in the icbm like would probably save uh tens of billions if not a low hundred a billion of do- probably like mid tens of billions like between 30 and 50 uh over the course of those 30 years so there there is some of that right um and we certainly don't want the top line of the budget to keep going up right now it's on track to be in the mid 700s of billions of dollars Um, And that we think is just too much, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic is going to put a lot of pressure on the budget to not keep climbing. And we're going to look for things to to cut and shuffle around. And we both Chris and I and the other authors think the military is ripe for that discussion of cut a bit and figure out more effective ways to use the money that you do have. Yeah, I'd
1: like to just put an exclamation point on that last uh, note from Eric. The the underlying premise of this paper is that the nation's resource constraints are real, and therefore they must compel hard strategic choices. That is our interpretation. We believe that a more restrained foreign policy is appropriate to the circumstances, and we believe that the force should be postured Accordingly. It is equally important to recognize that for the other side of the argument, those who believe in primacy, who believe that the US force posture around the world is essential to maintaining global security, they argue not for the status quo, they argue for more. They argue that the US military budget must grow substantially over the next uh, 10 to 15 years in order for us to sustain this same grand strategy. So it's important for us to understand that what, that even to argue for standing still, even to argue at a low $700 billion is not consistent with continuing our strategy of primacy. A primacy strategy calls for substantially more money. We think that was unlikely prior to COVID-19. We think it is highly unlikely after COVID-19, because the fiscal situation is much more dire today than it was three or five or six months ago. And equally important, the trade-offs within the domestic economy between military spending and domestic spending are going to be much harder to sustain because people are going to ask, and this has become almost cliched, is how many masks could we have purchased for the cost of a single Abrams tank? How many ICU beds would have been uh, paid for by the cost of a single destroyer? Those kinds of discussions simply weren't on the table um, even at the beginning of this year. And now they're on the table uh, in, in, you know, everywhere you see, all around you.
0: You know, I think that actually provides a sort of a a great question to wrap up on, um, because this paper was written before the COVID-19 pandemic um, sort of Started, or b- rather, before we all started working from home, before everything just went uh, sideways. Um, but since you know we're, we're on the inside here at Cato, I, I've been involved in the writing of this project. I know what you guys have been um, sort of talking about. You went back and incorporated the COVID nineteen pandemic into the paper. Um, you know, it's been a really sudden global shift. Um, and so, Chris, you you started to talk about this a little, but I really just would like both of you to talk a little about whether it changed your thinking at all um, as you wrote about force structure, or did it sort of just reinforce what you were already talking about?
1: I think it's fair to say that it, it mostly reinforced what we had already concluded, which is, again, we were talking about resource constraints even before everyone else was talking about resource constraints. We were talking about the vulnerability of the military instrument to uh, non-traditional threats we were talking about how um, these these tools that we've grown accustomed to are are not uh, particularly useful uh, or perhaps worse than useful uh, uh, than uh, against uh, you know a, a, an infectious disease as the as the, inci- as the incident surrounding the the Theodore Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier that had to go to Guam uh, because of the outbreak of the disease in the ship. Um, so so what's striking to me, is that with the exception of a preface that we wrote just last month, a short preface, um, we were able to insert fairly easily a few references to COVID-19 without changing any of our underlying conclusions, which is, uh, again, that we must prioritize both in terms of our strategic ends and in terms of the means that we use to achieve those ends.
2: Yeah, to echo what Chris said, the pandemic, Throws a lot of what we already thought just into starker contrast, and I think having the shock of it fiscally um, underscores, you know, when you, when you have limited resources, you need to make sure that they're being used in a very effective way. Um, I don't see how defense budget. I don't see how any administration can justify massively increasing the defense budget at this point uh, after what the country has experienced on the, um, in the economic fallout of COVID. And, you know, restraint can help, right? It's like, we've been saying this stuff for many years about the benefits of restraint. It's starting to gain more traction uh, before the pandemic. And I think that if, you know, if you're looking for one of my one of my favorite um, onion <laughs> headlines is this thing that says climate scientists, you know, telling leaders that green plan's ready to go whenever. Like, restraint grand strategists tell leaders that uh, an alternative way of doing things is ready to go whenever. Um, and I think this is this report represents a big contribution to that. And going forward, restraint is going to become... Not only I think strategically wise, but also fiscally necessary. And like, here's a plan. Uh, hope, hope, hope some folks uh, who have uh, some power over the budget can read it and incorporate it.
0: Well, great. Well, I, I think that's a, a great note to wrap up on because we're, we're out of time. Um, but I, I do think that this report is um, a really great contribution to this debate. Um, you know, I, I think I mentioned this earlier. A complaint I often hear is that people just don't understand how the U.S. military would look um, under a grand strategy of restraint. I think this at least starts to answer that question. So I strongly encourage everybody to take a look. You can find it off the Cato website. It's called Building a modern military. So, Eric and Chris, great to have you back with us. Thank you. And thanks to our production staff, Tyler Shanahan, Cecil Sherman, and Lauren Sander. Thanks to everybody at home for listening. You can continue the conversation at our Twitter handle, at PowerProblems. And if you like the show, leave us a good review on iTunes or recommend us to your friends.